Father, thank you for this salvation that we have been singing about, the salvation that you brought about through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you for coming. And as we remember how you came, may we remember the message of, of the triumphal entry. Prepare our hearts, we pray, to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we are again, another Palm Sunday. Anybody here ever been to a Palm Sunday service at a church before? Raise your hand. If you've, okay, a few of them maybe. Um, I like Palm Sunday. I like it as a reminder of what we're going to be celebrating this coming week. A, a reminder of what Jesus did for us some 2,000 years ago. Shortly before Jesus died, uh, we talked about how there was a great crowd in Revelation in the, in the children's message, but there was a great crowd of people that was celebrating in Jesus' day as well. It's called the triumphal entry, and there was this great crowd that welcomed Jesus as their king. Each of the four Gospels has a story of it. Now today we're going to look at it from the Gospel of John, and the reason that I chose John is because I had been studying the book of John in my personal devotional times, so I, I chose that book. But one of the phrases that stood out to me in John's story of the triumphal entry is what he said in verse 16 of, of chapter 12. He said, at first, the disciples did not understand all this. You see, there was so much imagery going on in that triumphal entry that it would have been almost impossible to pick up on, on probably even half of it at the time there. So much of what happened that day, that triumphal entry day, happened in fulfillment of what the Old Testament told the people to expect. And, and a lot of it was from Psalm 118. In fact, all four of the Gospels, as they're telling the story of the triumphal entry, they quote Psalm 118 in their telling of that story. Now, Psalm 118 was part of a collection of six psalms that people would sing as they were celebrating the Passover feast. Okay? So let me just explain a little bit of the connection now between the, the Passover feast, which was a feast that was commanded to be celebrated in the Old Testament, and then the Easter story, which we're about to celebrate ourselves this week. Well, Passover, uh, I'm sure many of you know this, but it's the time that the Israelites celebrated what God did to rescue them out of slavery in Egypt. Remember, Israel was in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. And what did the people do? They cried out to God. And God delivered them. Remember how he delivered them? Through the ten plagues, right? And what was the last of the ten plagues? It was the killing of the firstborn. God warned his people ahead of time that he was going to send that last plague, that one where he would kill the firstborn in every household, except for the households that were covered by the blood of the lamb. You see, God told his people ahead of time to offer these Passover lambs as sacrifices. So then when God himself went out to destroy the firstborn in every household, if he saw a house that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, he would pass over, literally pass over that house and go to the next one. When all that happened, the Israelites were released from their slavery in Egypt. The Egyptians finally then said, they, they recognized that they could then no longer fight against God and they let the Israelites go. And because that was such an important event in their history, God asked the people of Israel to remember it annually with a feast called the Passover Feast. 
So back to Psalm 118, like I said, that was the last of six psalms that were traditionally sung during the Passover feast. And history tells us that the people would, would sing Psalm 118 both as they were offering the, the sacrifices at the temple and then also as they were enjoying their Passover meal in their homes. So Psalm 118 was very much on the mind of the people as they came to celebrate Passover, and that's what they were doing as Jesus was making his triumphal entry. They were getting ready for Passover. They many of them probably were thinking Psalm 118 as the triumphal entry happened. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to now look at the triumphal entry in John chapter 12. But after we do that then, we're going to look back at Psalm 118 to see if we can pick up on some more of that imagery. Okay, John 12, verses 12 through 16. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast, that's the Passover feast, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion! See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. So again, I just want you to look at that first phrase in John 12:16. At first, the, his disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus had risen from the dead that they picked up on some of these things. Now, similarly for us, uh, many of you, like you said, have been to many a Palm Sunday sermon before. But I, I'm guessing that there's still some more that we can understand. And, and I think there's something really fascinating from Psalm 118 that I want to point out to you. Okay, so that's where we're headed today. Um, but let's look at John 12 for just a little bit first. I'll put verse 12 back up there. That one talks about a great crowd that had come for the feast. And again, the Passover feast, uh, that was one of three national feasts that God had asked the people of Israel to come and celebrate in Jerusalem. So at this time, when Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem, there was a, a crowd of people. I heard one historian say that the city of Jerusalem during these feasts would sometimes double in size because of all the pilgrims that would come into Jerusalem. So it was, it was an exciting time, any Passover feast, but especially so at this Passover feast because of what had been happening recently in Jesus' life and ministry. If, you, if you're reading in the Gospel of John, the way it's laid out there is in chapter 11, uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and it caused quite a stir. Now, some people had already made up their minds that Jesus was not the Son of God, was not the Messiah, and they wanted to kill Jesus. And then Jesus does this amazing miracle where he brings the guy back to life and Lazarus is walking proof of the power of Jesus Christ. And what did the people say in response to Lazarus? You know what some of them wanted to do? They wanted to kill Lazarus too. It's shocking to me. They saw the power of God in front of them and their response was, well, let's kill the guy that was miraculously raised from the dead. So that's, that's what's going on here in Jerusalem. There's a bunch of people there. Uh, there was a stir that was caused because of the miracles. So at this point, we should ask the question, why would Jesus go to Jerusalem? If the people there wanted to kill him, why should he go? Well, one answer is to celebrate the Passover feast. Again, that's what God set up in the Old Testament, that his people should come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover feast. So that's what Jesus was going to do. 
Um, but there was another group of people. Um, I, I mentioned the one already that wanted to kill Jesus, but there was another group of people that were very curious about Jesus. They wanted to see if perhaps he might be the Messiah. And that's the crowd that we see in verse 13, where we see them taking palm branches and going out to meet Jesus. And again, like I said in the children's message, palm branches were a, a national symbol of pride. So when they grab those palm branches, they're thinking, maybe this is the time where God's going to set up the kingdom. Maybe this is the time where God is finally going to release us from underneath the thumb of those Roman oppressors who are over us. That's what they were hoping. And then they shouted some things to Jesus. And it's amazing to me how much of this they got right. It's amazing how little of it they probably grasped at the time, yet how much of it they got right. So let's walk through what they shouted. First they shouted, Hosanna. Um, now if you don't know what that word means, it's a prayer that means save, please. And when they shouted this, they were quoting from Psalm 118, verse 25, which we'll get to in just a moment. Now technically speaking, it is a prayer. It's a prayer to God asking for salvation. But it also become a, a way to praise. So it was kind of both of those things together, both prayer and praise for salvation. And then next the crowd shouted, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And again they were quoting Psalm 118. This time they were quoting verse 26. Now remember, God's people had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. So when they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're thinking, Maybe this is the Messiah that God had promised. And then third, they shouted, Blessed is the King of Israel. Now this one is interesting to me because nowhere in Psalm 118 does it say anything about a king. So it kind of looks like they just added this one in there. And they were right to do so because Jesus is the king. Uh, but again, people were waiting and waiting for the Messiah, the king, the son of David, to come and take his throne. And as such, the people viewed this as their victory parade, welcoming their king in, hoping for him to share the spoils of victory with them. And that's all confirmed as we look at the next two verses, which I want to reread, verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. There it's a quote from Zechariah 9. And, and it's interesting to see the king coming into town, but he's coming not on a war horse, but gentle and bringing salvation, riding on a donkey. Now, if you look more closely at Zechariah 9, what you see again is this peace that I just mentioned, but it's an offer of peace that is to the nations. So when King Jesus came in, came in gentle, riding on a donkey, bringing salvation, coming with a message of peace and salvation for all the nations. Okay, so let's summarize John 12 just a little bit. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast. Great crowds were already there because they were waiting for the Passover feast. They were also getting really excited about what Jesus was doing, hoping that he might be the Messiah and the King. But another part of that crowd looked at Jesus as a blasphemer, somebody who deserved to die because he claimed to be God's son. The people who went out to meet Jesus, they were waving palm branches, and they were quoting Psalm 118. And again, Psalm 118 was very much on their minds as they were celebrating the Passover feast. And then one other quick thing about John 12, it's about a king. What we see in here is Jesus fulfilling prophecy of him being the king of Israel. 
Now, that's where we're going to be headed as we head towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I'm going to focus in on this idea that Jesus Christ is our King. But for today, we're going to now go back to Psalm 118. We're going to take a look at what it was that Jesus was fulfilling, because if we do that, I think that we will gain a better understanding of what he was doing that day. Remember, not even the disciples understood all of this. So let's see if we can put our minds to it to understand more of this. So if you would flip with me in your Bibles to Psalm 118. Uh, We're not going to look at the whole psalm today. It's 29 verses. We're going to mainly focus in on verses 22 to 27, but just a little bit of the context first. It's very much a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. It begins that way in verse 1. It ends that way in verse 29. And throughout the psalm, there's this loud, ringing praise that goes up to God. It's praise because of salvation. We see in verse 14, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. In verses 6 and 7, we twice see the wonderful promise of God with us. I want to read that for you, verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. At the end of last year, I did a seven-week sermon series on God with us because I think that God with us is the biggest blessing that we have in the Bible. Meaning, the, the whole purpose of salvation is that God would cleanse us so that we could be with him forever. And if we are with God, we have all that we need. Whether we're talking about living in heaven with him one day, or whether we're talking about struggling through our life right now, if God is with us, we have all that we need. So that's what the psalmist was rejoicing about in these verses. The Lord is with me. He's my helper. I will not be afraid. So Psalm 118 is most definitely a psalm of praise. It shines light on the beauty and the glory and the majesty of who God is as our Savior. But as we focus in then on verses 22 to 27 of that psalm, we see some things that might seem out of place. First, in verse 22, it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The analogy here is a builder is going out and they're looking for stones to build their building. See, you think that these builders would know what kind of stones they're looking for. They're, they're going out in, into the fields or into the quarries, and, and they have this idea in their mind of what the building should look like and what kind of stones they're looking for. And when they come across the stone that God had set apart to be the capstone, or that could perhaps better be translated as cornerstone, the stone that God set apart, they look at it and rejected it. This was the stone that God had chosen to take the most important, the most prominent place in the building, and the builders rejected it. In three of the four Gospels, shortly after the triumphal entry story is told, this verse is quoted again by Jesus in a parable where he talks about how the people rejected him as Messiah. So yes, Psalm 118 is a psalm of celebration and thanksgiving because of the Lord's salvation, yet some people rejected it. They looked at the stone that God had set apart to be the capstone or the cornerstone and they rejected it. And you know what? The same thing still happens today. Think about this. God has a plan of salvation for us. His heart's desire is that all would come to repentance and to a knowledge of the truth. 
He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And we are to receive Him. We are to build our lives on Him. If He's the cornerstone, that means that we are to to build on Him and every single part of our life is then to fit into the pattern of who Jesus Christ is as the cornerstone. That's what it's supposed to be. Yet think of how many people in this world look at what God has for them and reject that plan. Reject Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, God's plan is not thwarted. Just because some people reject his plan does not mean that his plan is thwarted. It definitely moves forward. And that's why in verse 23 it says, The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. His plan is marvelous, and his people will see it to be so. And our response should be like in verse 24, where it says, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I think that that verse is true any day we wake up. Whenever God allows you to live another day, you can say, the Lord has made this day and I want to rejoice in it. But I think in its context, this verse probably has more to do with the day of salvation. As, as God shows his Messiah to the world, and as we can now look back and understand that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, I think that we can look at that day as, as the day of salvation and say that I rejoice in that day. And then we get to another, uh, to the part of Psalm 118 where we see the word Hosanna. In English, in verse 25, it says, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. But if you were to read that in Hebrew, uh, the words save us are Hoshiana. Hosanna. That's where we get our word Hosanna from this verse. So to see how the people in John 12 may very well have been thinking of Psalm 118 as they were shouting Hosanna to the king who is coming in. Okay, and this reliance on Psalm 118 becomes even more clear as we go to the next verse in Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people were saying. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. Now again, I'm not suggesting that the crowd knew everything that they were doing. In fact, I think they didn't know a lot of what they were doing. But I think what we see is God orchestrating things to show us this this beautiful fulfillment of the Old Testament plan. Then the first part of verse 27 says, The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. His light here, I think, has to do with the fact that he has revealed himself to his people. That he has revealed his plan of salvation and made it known to us. But it's the next phrase of Psalm 118.27 that I really want to focus on because in that phrase we notice that in this majestic psalm of praise and thanksgiving, rejoicing in God because of the salvation that he brings, we see that the entire psalm has been moving towards a place. Psalm 118.27b says, With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Now, the first part of this is a little bit difficult to translate. Some of your Bibles might have some footnotes in there. Um, The bows are tree branches. So it doesn't say specifically here that they are palm branches, although in John 12 it did say specifically that the people picked up palm branches. Uh, so that's with, the, with boughs in hand. They're, they're picking up branches. And then they're joining in the festal procession. What is, a, what is a festal procession? Well, festal just means feast. And then procession, we know what a processional is, right? You see it at a wedding. You see the wedding party and the bride, and they're all coming together, and where are they going They're going towards the altar. And similarly, 
in Psalm 118.27, we see that all of this movement has been moving towards a specific place. And this part is not difficult to translate. This, uh, this is very clear that this movement is happening up to the horns of the altar. We're talking about the altar in the temple. Now what happened at the Old Testament altar? Sacrifice. And there's one other thing that happened there too. Worship. And, and those two things in the Old Testament are inextricably bound together. Sacrifice and worship. Here's, here's how. We were created to worship God. God is God and we are not. He is majestic and holy and awesome and perfect and, and we are not. Uh, praise the Lord, he's going to make us holy. But we are his creation. And our role as his creation is to praise and glorify and worship him. That is what we are created for. If you are not worshiping God, you are missing out on what life is. Because that is what we were created to do. But we mess that up with our sin. And we see that in the Garden of Eden. You think about how Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. And then sin got in the way. And that's what always happens. Sin gets in the way of worship. But what did God do? He had a plan. A plan to save us. And in the first stages of that plan, what we saw was that God asked his people to build an altar. And at that altar, they could offer sacrifices so that the worshiper could be cleansed temporarily only in the Old Testament. They could be temporarily cleansed. But what would happen then at the altar? The people, the worshipers would come. They would bring a sacrifice to the altar. They would offer it to God and God would cleanse them and allow them to be in his presence to worship him. That's, that's the pattern. That's what happens at an altar. And as such, the altar in the life of Israel became a prominent place. So it makes perfect sense that in this psalm of praise, as the people seek to be in the presence of God and worship him for who he is, that they would head towards the altar, bringing their sacrifice and worshiping God. Okay, so let me just say this again. In Psalm 118, the people were bringing their sacrifice to the altar so that they could be cleansed and meet with God. That's what Psalm 118 is about. Let's go back to John 12 now and see if we understand. At first the disciples didn't understand. Let's see if we understand now. Um, one of the questions that I asked from verse 12 in John 12 was why would Jesus go to Jerusalem? The first answer that I gave, well, he was going there to celebrate the Passover. That's where you would go. But now we see another answer because that's where Jesus was to die. If Jesus didn't want to die, there was a really easy solution. Don't go to Jerusalem. That's where the angry mob was. But Jerusalem was the place God chose for Jesus to be offered as a sacrifice. Now it's interesting where in Jerusalem died. We might have expected for him to be offered at the altar, at the temple, because that's where the sacrifices were made. But instead, he was killed on the cross. So what's the deal there? Well, I read one theologian this week that said, the horns of the altar from Psalm 118 became the arms of the cross. And spiritually speaking, the book of Hebrews tells us that when Jesus offered himself on the cross, he actually also offered himself spiritually in heaven. Because remember, when God told the people to build the tabernacle and then the temple, he told them to build it just as he had shown them because it was a pattern of a heavenly reality. So in Hebrews 9, it talks about how the, the earthly temple was just a shadow 
or a picture of the heavenly reality. So when Jesus offered himself on the cross, he was also offering himself on the heavenly altar. So think about the triumphal entry there. What happened? The people were celebrating Passover, the time when the people remembered how God delivered from their enemies. And he did so through the blood of the Passover lamb. They used Psalm 118 to shout praises for Jesus, the king. But just like in Psalm 118, where we saw a movement towards an altar, in John 12, we see the movement of Jesus coming into the city and heading towards the cross. And spiritually speaking, heading towards the heavenly altar to offer himself as a sacrifice. You see, animal sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year could never take away our sins. God had asked for them to be given as a way for the worshippers to be temporarily cleansed, but they could never fully take care of our sin. It is only the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that could pay the full penalty for our sins. And Jesus offered himself there. And that payment is the only one that could ever satisfy our debt. I hope you know that. Some people get this wrong. They get it very wrong. Some people, when they think about sin, they think, well, my sin isn't that bad. You know, maybe I've done some bad things, but I haven't done the really bad things. And then some people start to think, God wouldn't really punish me for those little mistakes that I've made, have I? W- would he? But the problem with that way of thinking is that it totally misunderstands our sin. Every single act of our sin is an act of lawlessness and rebellion against God. And the penalty is no small deal. The penalty would be eternal separation from God, and there is no payment that we could ever make for it. Now, other people, perhaps they recognize then, okay, yes, sure, I sinned against God. But maybe their response is to say, God, I'll make it up to you. Okay, I recognize that I've messed up in the past, but I'm going to learn from that, and God, I'll show you that I'll get it right from here on out. Now, don't get me wrong, I think that we should learn from our mistakes, but can we make up for our sins by doing better next time? No. There's only one payment for sins. And I think there's another way that, that we Christians sometimes get this wrong. We, perhaps, and hopefully, better than a all the other people of the world, we Christians understand that we have sinned against God. But sometimes we get it in our minds that we still have to make it up to God. That that we have to cover our sins. That when we sin, instead of running to the cross, instead of thanking God for the forgiveness that is there, we maybe beat ourselves up for it. But think about that. If you beat yourself up for your sins, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to finish some unfinished work of Christ on the cross? There is one payment for sin. It is what Jesus did as he offered himself as the unblemished sacrifice for us. I hope you know that. It's the only payment for our sins. The only payment that could fully satisfy the debt that we had earned. That's why Psalm 118 ends at an altar. It's only God who can take care of our sins. That's why, although John 12 begins with praise, if you read on in the book of John, eventually it heads towards the cross, towards the sacrifice. That was the purpose of Jesus coming to earth, so that he could go to the cross and die for us. 
So that day in John 12, the people saw Jesus and they rejoiced. And rightly so. He is our King. But amazingly, our King is also our sacrifice. Now to close out my sermon, I want to just give one brief point of application. There's, there's really just one thing I want you to do with this message. In light of what Jesus did for us, we should praise him. The crowd shouted Hosanna that day, and rightly so. Save us, please. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we think about who Jesus is and what he did for us, I want us to praise him for the fact that he came not just as our king, but also as our sacrifice. And if there are any of you out here who have yet to receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the very first application that you should do in praising Jesus would be to give your life to him, to recognize that it was your sins that he paid for, that there was nothing that you or anybody else could do about your sin problem. It was only the death of Jesus that will cover your sins. And if you have yet to receive him as as Savior and Lord, praise him now by giving your life to him, confessing your sins and asking for forgiveness, and allowing him to take his rightful place as King and Lord of your life. And for those of us who know Jesus, I just want us to spend some extra time this week praising Jesus for what he did. They call it Holy Week. It's a week, it's on your calendar. It's, I mean, it's filled with things. It's, it's Palm Sunday, it's Good Friday, it's Easter. Reminders for us to stop and think and praise Uh, We've been preaching through Revelation here. I'm just taking a two-Sunday break in that series, by the way. Uh, We'll get back to it after Easter. But in heaven, remember how often the action stops and just focuses on the throne and on the Lamb and they sing praises to Him. That's what I want us to do this week. I want us to stop regularly and praise Jesus for the fact that He came as our King and as our sacrifice. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this plan. This plan of yours to bring us to be with you. To forgive us, to cleanse us from our sins. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who came to do that. And yes, you came as our king and we should worship you and praise you and glorify you. But you also came as our sacrifice and for that too, Jesus, we want to worship you and praise you. Thank you, Jesus, that you offered yourself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that any of us who believe in you could be completely forgiven and brought into an eternity-long relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus, that you knew all this. You knew that Psalm 118 was heading towards an altar. You knew when you headed into Jerusalem that you were heading toward the cross. We thank you that you did that for us. We praise you now. And God, I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would remind us to praise you all week long as we think about the sacrifice that you made for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll invite the worship team up now.